0: In this episode, I chat with Riti and Mike, the co-founders of Ebb3DAO. Ebb3DAO is a global community of and for educators reimagining education with Web3 and AI. We go through so many topics under the umbrella of Web3 and AI, including how these technologies impact both teachers and learners, the parallels between the rise of AI and the advent of the internet, how to think about what democratizing these technologies mean, and how Ed3 Dow's grassroots pedagogy first movement is helping educators teach more effectively while considering these technologies. The episode is packed with such good nuggets and is a great primer for anyone interested in the space. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the EdTech Lab podcast, where we dive into the world of education technology with fellow academics, educators, and entrepreneurs. Join us as we explore the latest trends and innovations that are shaping education. I'm your host, Maita.
1: I'm Brady Seroff, co-founder of Ed3DAO and founder of K20 Educators. And I uh, am very interested in how emerging technologies and the concept of democratized learning is going to change the way that education operates, um, both in the U.S. and internationally. And so all of the work that I do across, you know, the nonprofit and the consulting and and all of my work is really about that, which is how do we create um, systems for learning that are owned by students and um, they're able to uh, sort of permeate the the boundaries of demographics and boundaries and things like that.
2: And I am Mike Peck. Uh, I am a co-founder of Ed3DAO as well. Uh, I'm also a full-time educator. I'm a director of technology in a public school in Pennsylvania. So I view um, my work uh, really, it's great because I get to, during the day, uh, kind of work within the confines of a a public school. And um, I, I really believe in the power of technology to be able to reimagine the way that we approach teaching and learning. So during the day, um, I get to uh, work with students, work with um, staff, work with our, our leadership teams in finding ways that we can really leverage technology to enhance teaching and learning. Um, and then the really exciting part after work is I get to go um, to a passion project and work alongside Vridi, which has been um, just a, an awesome journey over the last two years where. We've explored um, some really fringe technologies uh, in Web three and understanding blockchain and metaverse spaces and NFTs and how these um, how these new tools can also be leveraged, you know, for the purpose of reimagining education. And I view that work as um, you know really exciting because um, we don't have to build within the bounds of like a public school or the traditional system. So what we're thinking about is how do we um, how do we really reimagine the system uh, using these new tools? And so that that's really exciting to be able to kind of combine both worlds in my day to day work, uh, as well as working outside, you know, with 3D and our awesome team at Ed 3D. That's
0: amazing, and I'm super excited about this conversation because you know these emerging technologies or fringe technologies. I've been chatting with a lot of people about them, but they're mostly academics studying these things or industry people who are leading startups providing these technologies for the stakeholders that you mentioned. But I feel like you guys are really in the thick of things, definitely have that background experience as educators yourselves in and out of the classroom. And so I'm just excited to hear about your perspective as educators working with these technologies and also promoting these technologies uh, for what you said, democratizing education. We mentioned these technologies these emerging technologies we're really going to be talking about ai and web 3 for the most part for this conversation uh i know you've referred to these as, as the super duo how perhaps they may complement each other and may not complement each other but just to quickly start out how do you define web 3 and ai and i ask i'm, I'm hoping that you share that in your own personal words, like there is the technical definition of these things, but I would love to hear how you introduce these concepts to other people, because I know that people enter these things through different angles. I personally entered through education. People can enter in all sorts of different angles. So how do you think of these things?
2: Um, So in web three, from like a technical sense, um, you know, we're talking about technologies that are changing the way, they're really the core infrastructure of the internet. Um, we're talking about how blockchain, tokens, uh, NFTs, um, talking about metaverse spaces. Um, these tools are are allowing us to redesign like our experience with the web, and largely to this point, uh, we've relied on big intermediaries like Google and Facebook and Amazon um, to be able to allow us to experience the web in a very like streamlined fashion. Um, Because we haven't had the tools to be able to allow us to own the web and own our data and own our footprint. And these new tools are allowing us to do that. And so I think, um, you know, when we talk about Web3, most people tend to sort of like look at the technical changes right now because it's very new. Um, It's really rough around the edges. Um, It's hard to like get involved in Web3 because there's so many barriers in terms of like the technology But um, the same would be true for the first generation of the web. And so um, we're going to see with time that those rough edges will get smoothed out. And I think a lot of that has to do with the idea that Web3 isn't just about the technology. It's about how do we empower people. Um, So we're talking about really important core principles too, Um, things that include decentralization, like removing the power of the big tech giants, uh, we're talking about interoperability, basically allowing you to have a seamless experience in one place and transfer it to another. Um, we're talking about things like uh, data ownership, um, like how do you how do you um, you know own your footprint as opposed to giving it away to other data giants. Um, Self sovereignty or, or agency would be another key thing. Like how do we enable people to act on their own behalf on the web, and kind of back into that ownership piece. So I would say web three is really about kind of shifting the way that we experience the web from uh, the big kind of centralized authorities, Amazons, YouTubes, Facebooks, back to the consumers of the web. So I think um, we're talking about just like a kind of a fundamental shift in the way that we, we experience the web. And that's how I would look at web three. And that's how I like to kind of explain to other people, because I think the um the tendency is to look at like crypto and and nfts and that's it um but it's really so much more and more importantly it's really about the principles than it is about the technologies themselves because the technologies will change but the principles are really what will drive the space forward
0: awesome vritti anything to add disagree with agree with uh no i mean
1: i i think that uh i couldn't have said it better myself but um I would, I would add that uh, the, the principles that uh, Mike named are definitely important. I think it's also important to recognize the technologies that fall within Web3 ecosystem. So like we can define very simply Web3 as the evolution of the web, right? So what does the evolution of the web include? And I would say um, it includes blockchain, it includes things related to the metaverse, so augmented virtual mixed reality, it included includes the Internet of Things, so the internet, cloud, digital data, that kind of thing, and it also in- includes artificial intelligence. Um, and putting all those things together toward decentralization, I think, is like the simplest way to think about Web
0: three. Mm. Okay, so the Web three umbrella includes artificial artificial intelligence and how you're thinking about it in your work, um, I think people tend to think of these two things as separate entities. So why don't we start there, BT? Like how how does it fall under um, Web3 in your in your perspective?
1: Yeah, so I, I think it's a bit semantic, right? So I think there are a lot of, because Web3 is such a nebulous thing and because it hasn't quite manifested yet in terms of like the decentralization of data ownership and all the things that Mike described, um, Right now, we are in a place where a lot of different people are seeing it in different ways. And so instead of me sort of trying to convince people to see Web3 in a certain ways, what we've actually, uh, from the beginning, have said is Web3 encompasses all these things. We're going to continue focusing on these things um, because they are sort of like contributing to the, the way that people engage with digital assets um, you know, moving forward. And again, to underscore the principles, like because we know that AI is going to help with democratization of let's say learning, because we know AI is going to support with um, self sovereignty or interoperability, because we know AI is going to support with immersive experiences, like all of those principles that we really believe what are important to Web3, AI falls in for us squarely within the Web3 um, sort of ecosystem. And it always has, like, if you look at our, you know, podcasts or, or, you know, talks or webinars or whatever from two years ago, we've always said that this sort of falls into the Web3 ecosystem. So for us, it's, you know, how does the web, web evolve? And it evolves through these sort of umbrella technologies that I mentioned.
0: Let's talk about this ownership piece and shifting, um, shifting the way we use technology because of these two in the context of education, so Mike, for example, a while ago you talked about how um, instead of big corporations like Amazon, Spotify, YouTube, whatnot owning your data, people can own these things themselves. Why is that important in the context of education?
2: Hmm, it's a great question. Um, I think you could look at it. You could approach it from a few different angles. Um, I guess you know, to start really all the work that we're doing is, uh, is really focusing on how we can give teachers the, the right tools and the right knowledge to be able to have an impact on the students in their classrooms. So at the end of the day, uh, we want to make sure that our next generation of learners, the ones who are really going to build upon this new, you know, web infrastructure that's going to be in place when they grow up, um, we need to make sure that they're ready, um, and so I, I would like to kind of like think of it from the student lens. So how how do how do Web three technologies uh, empower students? Well, um, when we're talking about like this generation of the web, it's it's really funny if you walk through um, like my school or probably any school, elementary school. Um, you, you ask the kids like, what do they want to be when they grow up, and they'll say, oh, I want to be a YouTuber. You know, I want to be a YouTuber. Um, so many classrooms, you'll see 20, 30, 40% of the kids who want to be YouTubers. Um, and it, you know, it's something that like I used to look at and laugh at like, Oh, that's, you know, it's funny, it's cute, whatever. Um, but the reality is, is that, um, you know, YouTube siphons away and extracts away. And you could apply this same thing to Spotify, you know, any kind of creative platform. A lot of these platforms siphon away value from the creators themselves and so if we think if we run with that youtube analogy you know the reality is today most of these kids won't be able to become youtubers and make a living off of youtube but um, if we start thinking about the future and how new platforms can enable creators to not get the value extracted away from them um that that these these young ones today may have a better opportunity of becoming that creative that they always wanted to be, whether it's developing you know, their own art, their own music, um, you know, their own physical items, whatever, whatever the case might be. And so um, thinking about how we can make sure our next generation of kids are ready to be uh, able to own their own learning and to be lifelong learners, uh, to understand the importance of skills like entrepreneurship um, and, and to really lean into their creative uh, capabilities I think is a really important thing. Um, Right now our systems are designed to produce kids who are generalists. You know, you take your maths, your sciences, your Englishes, you go on to college and that's where you specialize, right? Um, The reality is, is that there's a lot more ways to make a living now because of the internet. And that that was true with like the previous generation of web. But what happens when uh, creators are able to own their own experiences um, you know when they, when they move on and, and decide to make their own art or music or whatever the case might be. So I think we really need to think about the digital literacies that we're imparting in our students um, and giving them the skills to understand what it means to own your own data. Um, o- what does it mean to be able to produce um, NFTs that, that are, you know, uh, they have a, a provenance on blockchain. They can be authenticated. They're your property. You can sell them as you wish to. You can earn royalties for those. Um, so in thinking about all these new tools that we have available, um, how do we give kids the skills they need to be able to be you know, participants in the new world economy? I think is a really important part of like why we do what we do.
1: I'll add okay. to that. Uh, Go ahead. For, for the ownership of data piece for learning, uh, there's two specific use cases that I can think of. One is credentialing, and I think that's probably the most commonly used use case with, um, you know, ownership of data, which is like how do you own your learner credentials? So, you know, uh, and that applies to like healthcare and any sort of like credentialing system or documentation system there is. Um, and what the credentialing allows people do to do that I don't think we talk about enough is it's not just that you get to own your own data across different institutions, but you actually get to create your own learning journey, right? That's actually the main value of the credentialing system. It's not just like convenience that I don't have to call my bursar to get my transcript. It's actually that if my credential can be validated by a you know, university or a validating source that says I earned this degree or I earned this course or I earned these credentials for this course, then I can actually get my credentials from a variety of places. It doesn't have to be just from one university. It can be a combination. And so what that allows students to do is create their own, you know, self-paced learning journey that spans countries, you know, institutes, cities, and time periods. And they can potentially create like an ad hoc major if they wanted to, um, as long as it was, you know, uh, appropriately valid- validated. And I think that kind of learning, especially with the onset of AI and people being able to generate more quality resources with AI is going to be a much faster, uh, it's going to be adopted much faster than I think anything that we've seen before because it's so accessible and because it allows people to choose your own learning adventure, which is essentially the thing that I think most people want to do and they don't want to sit in standardized classrooms. And so, so I think that's one of the real potentials here. And that's one of the reasons why, Maite, you had earlier said that, you know, I, I've written in my newsletter that AI and Web3 is a superhero duo. And the reason I say that so often is because they both can actually accelerate each other. So in the case of Web3, uh, AI can accelerate Web3 by um, being able to produce more, you know, coding and, uh, you know, technical content to be able to create more interoperability, but also to be able to create content on the web three and to sort of like, you know, um, create more web three, you know, ecosystems um, that are more adaptive and more personalized to individuals. And then on the flip side, web three can contribute to AI because right now AI is having all these security and privacy issues and IP issues, right? So it's like, you know, student data is is being, um, is being you know, uh, violated and, uh, you know, artists are feeling like their artwork is being stolen by, you know, these uh, AI generative tools. And so if we actually attach some of these assets to blockchain and created a way to fractionalize the ownership or the usership of these assets, then when AI actually pulls in an asset that belongs to somebody, it'll be much easier for that person to say, actually, I own this asset. And I should be getting a royalty every time it's used, um, you know, on the platform, whatever. So so that sort of like IP issue and the sort of security issue could potentially be solved by blockchain. And at the moment, there really isn't a better solution than blockchain. Mm-hmm. It has yet to be implemented in, in a way that works. But I think that, you know, that's coming pretty soon.
0: So I actually have an actual use case for the credentialing piece. And I'm glad you brought that up because I'm an international student. Like I, I graduated high school in the Philippines I went to university in England and then I studied for my masters in the USA and every time I apply to a university I have to send my transcript to a third party validator to one say that it is indeed an english course and second is it's a credible university so and there's so much cost associated to that and time so every time I've had to do that I'm just like this is such a hassle and when I learned about block through credentialing I was like this is this is a perfect use case and I think it would be like a great company anyone wants to like ch- tackle this problem because if you think of like institutions that have 40% international students attending their universities, there's just a huge market for it. Um, so I want to talk more about the AI enhancing Web3 piece. Um, I found it interesting because one of the benefits of Web3 is that, for example, students who want to become creators can own their content creation. That was the example that we talked about a while ago. But also, there's this like huge argument of AI, instead of allowing people to own their futures by giving them these skills to protect their future in the workforce, they're actually going to be taking away these jobs from them. I know we've talked about this briefly, um, and you guys have your own hot takes. I'd love to hear about what you think about this. Will AI save humanity or destroy humanity debate?
2: That's an interesting question couple questions there. Um, I mean, I don't think, the first thing I would say is, um, you know, with regards to uh, AI will take away jobs. I think, you know, we've been seeing uh, trends in automation for uh, decades at this point. Um, And I think some would argue that because it's been slow, like robots currently aren't running the floor, you know, at every single manufacturing plant, um, they haven't taken over all jobs, um, I think there's there's definitely some merit to that that argument, but I also would say though too that um, the ability for generative AI to produce new content based on just simple inputs is like exponentially greater enhancement as compared to what we've seen previously. So the speed with which this is going to happen is going to be very challenging for for many. Uh, organizations, societies, to really figure out how to um, kind of uh, reskill. Um, so I think there's, there's definitely a challenge ahead for us. Um, but is it insurmountable? I would say no. I mean, we've had these conversations before, where this new technology is going to replace, you know, people. Um, whether it's you know going back into like the 1700s, 1800s, there's all these different cases where we had you know, uh, jobs are done because of this new technology. The reality is, is we find ways to reallocate um, human capital. Um, The key for us is to be able to upskill and reskill people using uh, these new tools. And so I would say, um, while AI will displace a lot of jobs, I think it can be also used to upskill and help teach people new jobs. Uh, In fact, even enable people to do new jobs um, because uh the capability of AI as like a co-pilot for any number of jobs is is really quite mind-boggling. I can't produce my own art, but now give me chat GPT and I can text my way into creating really awesome images for my blogs or you know, for a video that I'm working on. Um and so it, it's gonna really enhance people's capabilities to do things they couldn't do before. Um so I think while we face some some challenges in, in upskilling and reskilling people in the future, um, but I, I think that we we can certainly overcome that through the use of some of these new tools. Um, and I don't think AI will destroy humanity—not in the near future. I think we have a good ways away from that yet. But um, you know, I've heard some pretty convincing arguments about both sides of it, so I'll just leave it there. Yeah, you know,
1: uh, it, it's such. It's one of those things where you can actually compare it to the onset of the internet pretty, you know pretty well because you know the internet produced all of these consequences that we didn't anticipate. It uh, brought the rise of social media, it brought the rise of disinformation, it brought um, the rise of uh, you know, cyberbullying and you know depression and all that. but it also brought the rise of digital economies and commerce and global connectivity and knowledge and information sharing. And I think AI is going to experience the exact same shifts. It's going to have all of the positives that the internet did and probably all of the negatives that the internet did. And to Mike's point, I think what is most likely going to happen, in especially in the context of education and the workplace, is that with these tools, we're going to see an increase in quality of production and that quality of production will set a new standard for the way that we work and operate so if you think about the the content that mike said he can produce before the internet or before we were able to access computers we were only able to use pen to paper but now we can use digital tools to create art now that we can create a a generative art through ai that's going to further sort of increase the quality that can be produced And so I think humans are going to produce even better quality than that eventually, because one of the things that humans can do that AI cannot do is that humans can actually innovate, right? One of the things with generative AI that I think most people understand, but perhaps it's, you know, well worth saying, which is generative AI is repurposing old content in different ways and different configurations to produce new content. So technically it's new, but it is not Brand new and innovative. It's not sort of like a novel thing um, that is sort of like completely a new invention. And humans are actually very capable of inventing new things, and they do that all the time. And so that's like a huge differentiator. So once AI has sort of taken over, you know, everything that we do, I think humans are actually going to step up and do something even better. The other thing that AI cannot do that humans do really well is AI cannot make meaning. And it can't make judgments. You know, uh, humans are using all of their life experiences, their sentiments like pain and love and happiness, their uh, experiences through you know learning and and sort of working with other individuals to make judgments and to make opinions and to to make meaning of content and sort of you know the things that they experience in the world. AI doesn't do that. So I was actually um, keynoting at a superintendents conference a couple of weeks ago in California. And I was speaking to fifty superintendents about uh, the fact that AI cannot make meaning. And one of the superintendents had the best story. He said, "My son used AI for one of his high school assignments, and the assignment was, can, uh, can you write a um, a letter saying goodbye to racism?'" And so, you know, he was supposed to do it on his own, but he actually used AI to sort of like give him some ideas. And once he put that prompt into AI, AI got back to him and said, it started the letter with, dear racism, we've had such good times in the past, right? So it's just like AI wasn't making meaning of the prompt. It was just using templates and sort of, you know, these patterns that it has for letter writing to create a positively oriented letter. And so the meaning making is really where humans thrive. And that's really where I think humans are going to get better at and become better thought leaders through if they are able to sort of you know, continue to hold on to that. Now, the other side of this is because AI does seem really powerful and does seem like it does make judgments because it gives us so much data and because it has billions of pieces of data, what humans should be cautious of, what we all should be cautious of, is not to lose our self-governance, right? So if we're constantly relying on AI to give us answers to questions, then we will eventually start stop a- answering those questions ourselves. And so that's the one thing that I would be cautious of, uh, which is how do we ensure that we're using AI tools to optimize our competencies and our outputs w- while also maintaining the level of self-governance that's going to be really needed in order for our community to continue thriving.
2: Can I just, I just want to riff off of that. I think there's one, I would add one more point to that. And I think like Vridi, you were, you were saying this and um, it like struck me, I don't know where I heard this before, but like one of the things that's really interesting about this technology is that um, it's going to remove a lot of barriers to entry for all sorts of different jobs um, whether you're a writer whether you produce art um, or if you want to produce art or if you want to produce writing um, what's really interesting is that this new technology is going to remove some of those barriers to entry and some of those jobs or even like hobbies perhaps you even want to pursue or or take up and it'll be less about like your you know, what you know, as opposed to like the quality of your thinking and problem solving. Um, because these new technologies are going to reduce, it's like, you know, trying to start a garden with like, you know, physical tools, like a shovel and a rake and whatever, and using, you know, power tools, like, there's a huge difference in in the quality that you can produce because of the the quality of the tools. And so I think what will be really interesting is to think about, you know, that um, you know, that student who who wants to start a business but doesn't know how to write up a business plan or, you know, that that child who has a business that they already want to start, but they don't know how to make the art for their website or produce a website. Um, you know, we've seen in a lot of cases how technology over the last especially like decade has really kind of like enhanced people's abilities to pursue different types of work um, on their own terms. And I think AI and and certainly Web3 will be a part of that too. And, and that is like, how will these tools enable people to pursue the work that they want to pursue? Because they're going to reduce barriers to ownership and creation.
0: That last point is actually very important. And I agree with that. I was just listening to a separate podcast. Um, I think it was an Andrew Huberman podcast with Priscilla Chan and Mike um, Mark Zuckerberg. And they were talking about just the, found, the work they're doing in their foundation and how, Um, one pillar that they're focusing on is creating tools to solve uh, human disease problems, for example. And they emphasize that the tools piece is important because historically, if you look at new innovations and new discoveries, they happened after the invention of tools. For example, in astronomy, we discovered all these things after the invention of a telescope. And so that kind of reminded me of what you just said of like, now, with these technologies, we're unlocking future potentials of discovery that, yes, we don't know what they are yet, but at least we have the tools to get ourselves there. So we we mentioned removing barriers to entry. We mentioned democratizing ed- education. And we mentioned like these parallels to the advent of the internet before, um, back in the day, and how those are so similar to Web3 and AI, which makes me think of the resulting digital divide that happened with the internet. You people also said that the internet was meant to democratize everything when it comes to, you know, society and the way we're doing things. And yet there is this digital divide where some groups benefit more than others. Um, How do you think of that in, in terms of, well, let's focus on education. Like how, how can we pursue this mission of democratizing education with, with these technologies, given what we know from the past of, certain people benefiting more than others? You
1: could look at it in two different ways. One is how do we get everybody access to the technologies to be able to use AI and the internet? And the other way is to think about it at a meta level, which is how do we use AI to come up with solutions to give access to everybody? You know, so it's, uh, you know, on the first point, um, I think oftentimes when we come up with new technologies or new use cases, the teachers and the educators that have access to that technology are thinking about how to innovate within that technology for their classroom, but they're not quite thinking about how to give access to the actual hardware to students that don't have access to it. And I think that's a that's a gap that, you know, different philanthropists and different government organizations are looking at, but we haven't had a surefire way to answer that. What's interesting is there are countries that have resolved some pieces of this in a way that is very equitable. So for example, in India, there is a company called Reliance, which is now a multi-billion dollar company. And they have created a cell phone plan that is so affordable that people who aren't able to afford a home have cell phones. Right, so it's like there, there is the the cell phone is. I think it's been adopted. Um, I, I forget what the numbers are actually. I looked up looked them up a few weeks ago. Actually, in India, they've been adopted by you know a huge percentage, like far more than fifty percent of the population have been able to adopt cell phones. So, so my curiosity there, I'm not a hardware person, is like why aren't we able to do that with with Wi-Fi or with computers? And I think again, there have been some attempts, uh, you know, made by you know, let's say Google Chromebooks or by Starlink and, and by the, these other entities. But I am I am curious to know why isn't this a global effort? And then the other meta piece is, can we actually, you know, engage with AI and have it actually help us answer some of these questions if we haven't been able to answer it ourselves? And then is there a way for Web3 and the token concept behind Web3 to be a catalyst for that as well, right? So can we create cooperative sharing systems and and cooperative you know, democratic systems that can actually give access to people uh, that don't have access uh, based on the generosity of people who do have access.
2: Yeah, those are really good. Um, I I would say, like, usually um, the conversation around the digital divide kind of starts with the hardware conversation. Um, Here in the U.S., I mean, I think we've come a long way, Um, like, Unfortunately, COVID, for what it was, um, did uh, really kind of uh, move forward efforts to get hardware in the hands of kids who need it. Um, and even today, um, I think it was earlier this week, actually, well, maybe last week at this point, um, but the FCC has announced some pretty significant structural changes to how they're going to allow for funding to be allocated for resources like broadband. Um, into rural communities, which is a, a really great step in the right direction. Um, certainly doesn't end the problems that we have there, but it's a, a big step forward. Um, the The piece of the conversation that I think um, is uh, often overlooked with digital divide is um, we get kids hardware, but um, oftentimes, unless the teachers and the schools have the capabilities of uh, thinking or rethinking about teaching and learning um, and the context of having these new tools, they just digitize old practices. And like uh, Vridi has said this a number of times, it's like, we don't want to use AI to just do bad teaching and better, or sorry, bad teaching, better or more efficient. Um, grammatically correct, of course, that that was not the right way. But, um, but yeah, I think the, the point is that um, you know, we have new tools, we have to think about new ways of delivering instruction in ways that leverage these new tools. Um, so for our work, um, I think it's really important that we're giving teachers the skills they need to keep up with the pace of change, um, because it's very, very difficult. Um, when when your plates are quite full as an educator in the classroom, you need to be given tools, uh, practices, methodologies, understandings, That allow you to understand how these new technologies can not just um, supplant what it is that you're doing but supplement what you're doing too as well. Um, Or rather the reverse, not just supplement but supplant what you're doing in a way that's going to benefit teaching and learning and, and especially the students. So I think we need to think about the digital divide both from the hardware perspective and also from preparing our educators to making sure that they're able to convey to the students what digital literacies they need to participate again in in their future more effectively. Um, So I think those are a couple of really important things. And um, when you were talking about uh, kind of how do we use AI to kind of solve new problems or how do we use Web3 in this picture? You know, Web3 is about, um, one of the things we talked about earlier is about removing the intermediaries that kind of slow things down. Um, and one of those things is is really like the bureaucracy of like our systems. You know, every school system has like umpteen tiers, you know, to get to the student. And and what I wonder is how can these systems help um, kind of streamline access uh, to resources so that, you know, the kids who are most in need of those resources get those resources faster rather than having to work through, you know, various levels of government or through school systems. Like how do we develop Um, you know, tools that are going to better allocate resources to those who most need it. And, you know, I think using um, AI for things like data analysis in your business operations and using blockchain technologies to ensure that, you know, monies are allocated appropriately to the right students who need them. Um, You know, I think there's a lot of use cases for these things beyond just teaching and learning in the classroom. And, and we have to be thinking about how these technologies can enhance our, our operations in schools too.
0: You mentioned very real problems there of, um, yes, it would be lovely to have everybody on board and use Web3 and AI in the classrooms and to teach how to use these things. But as you mentioned, there are so many challenges um, and infrastructural kind of hurdles that you have to jump through to get that to happen in a lot of places. I mean, I so I used to run a coding academy where we taught computer programming to K-12 students. And this was like a few, a few years ago. We were going around doing the same thing where we were the kind of trying to convince people why computer programming was so important. And yeah, I faced the same things where, we, you know, this, this was in the Philippines and, and people just didn't have time. They didn't have bandwidth. They didn't see... Why, I, why should I prioritize this over getting as simple as, you know, getting my students to read and write these curriculum mandates that I've been given? And I, I want to maybe talk about this, part, uh, like in the work that you're doing with Ed3DAO in particular, how are you addressing those challenges? Which angle are you tackling it from? Are you working with schools? Do you work in the, those other levels that can help teachers do implement these things?
1: So one of our core principles has always been to be grassroots oriented. And so we're not working with institutions, we're working with individuals, right? So we're working with educators and these educators are self-identified educators. They can be traditional school educators, higher education educators, they can be tutors, homeschooling educators, um, that doesn't matter to us. But what's important is we want to engage with people that are multipliers of, of knowledge and we think educators are the best situated to do that. So that's the first thing, which is where we're approaching educators. The second thing is we totally understand. So, so this is actually a combination of two ideas. One is something that Mike mentioned, and um, which is we, we want to make sure that we're not going in with just the technology, we're going in with the pedagogy, right? We want to make sure that there is deep meaning and deep purpose and value behind you know, the technology that's used. And then um, we also want to make sure that you know, we're not perpetuating bad habits. So the way that we're approaching educators is actually through pedagogy first and through principles first, right? So uh, one of the, the things that we do as our core business model is we partner with universities and we create Web3 coursework for them and we do a revenue share with them. And the way that we're approaching the coursework, um, it's you know all of the topics that I mentioned before that fall under the Web3 umbrella, but we're not, Saying, hey, here's an intro to metaverse course. We're actually saying here's an intro to immersive learning and conceptualized learning through the metaverse, right? We're, we're not um, you know, teaching AI point blank. We're we're saying, you know, here's a universal design for learning course and how to use AI to enhance that. You know, how and, and so we're we're trying to go in with the pedagogy that we think is going to, you know, create more equitable opportunities for students and for teachers and um things that are more hands-on things that are more personalized things that are you know sort of fall within the principles that we named earlier and then you know using the technology to basically emphasize how important those pedagogies are and how much more efficient and more effective those those pedagogies can be using technology and so that's really the sort of like inroad. um one of the other courses that uh you know we're in the process of building is how to uh, think about financial literacy and microeconomies in your classroom through decentralized finance, right? So it's really important that we meet educators where there are in a way that also elevates their learning. One of my like least favorite things in the education industry is when people say, let's meet educators where they are. It's literally a pet peeve of mine because if educators are not, you know, in in a place where they can actually provide efficacious learning, then why are we meeting them at where they are and why are we complacent to, to those expectations? So what I always say is meet educators uh, where they are, but also elevate where they are, right? So basically create that on-ramp for them where they can actually, like, excel and fast, right? And if they're not willing to, honestly, that is a clear sign that that educator either needs to get with it or, you know, find a different profession because, like, it is not okay if you are not using the internet. Let's say to, to you know find resources. If you're an educator that is you know not exposing your students to any form of uh, digital media, like that is going to be a detriment to that student. Um, you know this is of course barring you know earlier age students, um, early childhood students that you know might not benefit from that. But you know middle school, high school. If, if you're an educator that is, you know, very much stuck in the sort of traditional ways of teaching, then now is the time. Now is the opportunity to actually do something really amazing using AI as your as your helper, right? So, um, so yeah. So we approach it through. Uh, that was a bit of a tangent, but we approach it through uh, through pedagogy, um, and then we go into the technology.
0: That's great. And um, Mike, I just remembered you came from stand with crypto, so I'm wondering if you if there's any piece in the policy angle of it that you can also talk about.
2: Mm. I'm going to meet Vridi where she is. and (laughs) um, (laughs) I think I would say, um, yeah, like meeting, meeting educators, you know, providing, I think one of the things we've really tried to focus on is how do we provide accessible on ramps for educators to get involved with these technologies? Um, Oftentimes like, um, I think if you were to talk to most people on the street about like AI or Web three, um, you know most people would probably kind of skew to the idea that this is very technical stuff that they can't use and they don't know how to approach it or where to begin. And so we we try to create a space where in our community where um, educators from all walks of life can come and can uh, begin to engage with these ideas, these technologies in a way that's like approachable. Um, The other thing I would say, too, is so to the inroads question, um, it's really interesting because Rudy was talking about credentialing, um, and I think it's such a great use case um, to your point um, earlier about, um, you know, kind of cross border verification Um, that's happening in Europe right now. They've actually built out a blockchain specifically designed for issuing credentials that can be verified cross border. Because uh, EU nations, like you, might be working with four, five, six different countries during a learning journey, and having uh, you know a blockchain to verify, issue and verify uh, makes things so much more efficient for human capital to move freely across the EU. So um, it's actually happening, which is really exciting, and um, and I would say that like there's been a, a pretty big shift um, in the last probably five years towards the idea that. You know, not everyone needs to go to college. Um, not everyone needs like a college degree to d- to get a job. Um, and we're seeing um, both at federal and state levels um, a lot of policy shifting towards um, learners having some autonomy over their learning and journeys, which um, has led us to a place where um, we are we are actively getting kids involved in like internships and career and technical education at a far higher level than than I have seen previously, like where I work and I've been in my district for about 15 years. So I've actually had some conversations with my high school leadership about how do we recognize learning outside of the classroom using credentials, um, potentially on blockchain as, as a way of um, you know recognizing new learning opportunities because not all learning happens in a classroom, not all teachers are in a classroom. So, how do we recognize that? And credentials are a great, great way to do that. So, we've actually been starting to have conversations about what that looks like. How, what's the value proposition? Um, how do we build out um, you know, our community's capabilities for this? How do we um, drive value to those credentials? And so, we're thinking about these in, in smaller verticals. So, kind of start small. Um, we have a great healthcare system in our area. How do we how do we prepare kids for health sciences courses or uh, to get internships in some of our local hospitals or health clinics um, if they're interested in that line of work? So I would say that like um, there, there's very much a, a movement towards um, skills and, and recognition that Web3 technologies are going to be great for. And it's just a matter of being in a position to connect the dots. I think that's really key right now. And how do you convert those things, um, like uh, through through the right words? Because um, communicating these technologies and the principles behind them is really important. And and I would say that kind of parlays right into your question about um, staying with crypto. Um, had an opportunity to meet with uh, eight different representatives from Pennsylvania, Georgia. And I think one of the things that struck me the most is um, the sort of the, um, the, the narrative around um, crypto and Web3 in general is that it's all scams. It's a bunch of junk. It's a fad. It's going to go away. And um, the reality is, is that every person I spoke with, um, whether it was a, a staffer or a congressman or a congresswoman, uh, everyone was was open to listening. They wanted to learn more. They wanted to understand what it is that Ed3DAO is doing and how we're leveraging these technologies, because the conversation isn't about today and what's here and what's now. It's about our future. It's about how do we um, create on-ramps? How do we create accessible legislation, um, regulation for these technologies that, that really propels us forward? Um, the, the U.S. took a very pro-internet stance in the early days. And that paid dividends uh, for decades because we've become kind of the hub for internet um, companies and and digital companies from across the globe. Um, And so I think, you know, how the words we use to educate others really matter a lot. And we need to be mindful about that as we, as we kind of, um, you know, further translate these new technologies and principles into things that, that we try to share with others. So, um, so that was kind of a long, but I hope I, I kind of captured a couple of, uh, you know, points that Vridi really made and just also responded to, uh, you know, about policy too, because I think that's really a really key point.
0: I know you, you both probably have your ideal state of education in mind with in terms of like, what, what education looks like with the mm-hmm. use of these technologies or how they use these technologies. What is your hope for people or that people do that the education system does in order to get there? So, so sort of for any education, uh, educator listening, policy maker listening, industry leader listening, kind of what is your hope for them to keep in mind so that we get to this ideal state of um, democratizing education using these emerging
2: technologies?
1: Um, Mike, right? go for it.
2: <laughs> um, I think one of the keys is to, you know, we have an opportunity to uh, really rewrite the script when it comes to how we create the opportunities for our young people to become what they wanna become when they grow up and how to be um, engaging citizens and you know productive adults, um, successful in, in whatever line of work they choose Um, our systems right now, our traditional education systems are not designed for human flourishing. They're just not meant to enable every learner to capitalize on their strengths. And, and I think, um, you know, we have an opportunity to leverage this technology that, that, that really is focused on the individual, right? We're, we're shifting away from like the companies and the systems and the structures, to giving individuals the tools that they need to kind of live life on their own terms with Web3. Um, really, it's been focused on like the financial sector, but but the potential exists for us to be able to use these same technologies to really create new systems of learning. And so um, you know, whether you're, if you're a regulator, um, if you're an educator, um, a school leader, a district leader, um, I think the key is to keep an open mind and to better understand these technologies, because they have a potential to really help us transform um, not just economies, but but our society too, as well. In some really powerful ways that that allow us to focus on human flourishing, uh, to return agency to individuals. And so I think um, you know, regardless of of where you stand in in, in public, whether it's like I said, with the education or within. Uh, policymaker realms, I think we have some a really great opportunity to uh, use this technology in some really positive ways. And so it's early, um, but and we have a lot of learning to do, but I think we need to be given the space to explore and understand.
1: And I'll end with a quote and a little context around the quote. So uh, Ivan Illich is a philosopher and scientist, and he's famously known for saying that an education for all is an education by all. I think those are really powerful words because it basically helps us identify one of the main things that we can do to ensure that we have more holistic learning experiences, which is to involve as many stakeholders in the learning as possible. So let's forget about technology. Let's forget about what is happening in the world. Let's forget about all that. If we actually in our institutions involved the stakeholders that were being most impacted by the learning, then teachers would not be the only ones who would have to make those decisions and keep up with those trends because students would bring in the technology, parents would bring in the ethics, employers would build in the competencies that are needed for for the future of work. And so if we can involve all those stakeholders in that conversation, then it doesn't become just a responsibility of the teacher to decide what is being taught. It becomes a collective responsibility. And um, I think that's really, you know, one of the key things that Ed3DAO is focused on, which is how do we ensure that educators are skilled up to think about democratized learning through, of course, technology, but also through the principles of democracy and self-sovereignty and inclusivity and security and interoperability and all of those things I think are really going to help enhance the utilization of technology um, instead of you know putting the technology necessarily first, it's really purpose-oriented and meaningful. So I'll, I'll leave us with that.
0: Thank you. Those are both very powerful words to with. Thanks for your time and thanks for joining. Thanks, Lita.
2: Thanks so much, appreciate it.